Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hey there, and good afternoon. My name is Renee Rao, and I'll be hosting today's show. Today we get to hear about an exciting citizen science project from Joni Ball and Peter Oboisky. Joni is a UC Berkeley graduate student in the College of Natural Resources, where she focuses her research on dragonflies. Peter is the collections manager and senior museum scientist at the UC Berkeley Essig Museum of Entomology. They spoke to Brad Swift about the new Calbrug project. The Essig is collaborating with Zooniverse to run the Calbrug website, which allows anyone with an internet connection to help digitize the vast collection of bug specimens in nine California natural history museums. Just over 3,000 citizen scientists have joined the project to date. We'll learn more about Calbug and bugs in general in today's interview. Joni Ball and Peter Oboisky, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about the Calbug project that you're both part of. And how did that get started? What was the genesis of the project? So Calbug started in 2010 as a collaboration of the major entomology collections in California and as a group, the collections were awarded an NSF grant to database their entomology collections through this program called Advancing Digitization of Biological Collections. And the goal is to digitize over one million specimens. The purpose is to capture the collection information from the labels, like the species name, when the specimen was collected, who collected it, and when it was collected. So the Essig Museum is an insect collection at UC Berkeley, and our collections go back about 100 years. And these represent the research of our faculty and students over that period of time. And it's a representation of what's lived in California all this time. So each one of those specimens in the museum is a data point. It tells you what lived where at what time. And so the problem is it's all locked up in these specimens. It's on these tiny little labels sitting in a museum somewhere, and nobody has access to this information. So the point of this project is to make that data available to to the research community and to the general public because this all goes online free to everybody to look at. So that's um, the big point of this is to make this 100 years of, of data available to people, researchers. And to do this, you know, it's, it's a pretty overwhelming task. Now, other museums have done this before with their vertebrate collections. For instance, the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology here on campus, they've already databased their entire collection, and they're able to do wonderful things with it. They're looking at distributions of different species and what time of year they occur. But entomology museums have lagged behind just because of the sheer volume of specimens that we have. We have orders of magnitude more specimens than some of these other museums. And we just thought that was too big of a job, and nobody wanted to tackle that job. But now with this funding from the National Science Foundation, we feel like, okay, we, we can take a shot at this now. Let's take a stab at it. How big is the collection? Well, we don't actually know, but uh, when you multiply how many specimens per drawer and all the drawers that we have, it comes out somewhere around five to six million specimens that we have in our collection. 
And that's just ESIG? That's just the ESIG Museum. That's and then uh, combine that with the eight other institutions that we're working with. We're talking tens of millions of specimens among all of us. So to do the one million is just uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg, but it's, it's a place to start. In the beginning of the project, we were hiring students to enter the data manually directly from the specimens themselves, but we found that that was taking a really long time, so we started taking photographs of the specimens, which is beneficial in that we then have a record of both the specimen itself and the labels, so we can go back and check specimens later. People can also enter this data from the images from wherever they are online. That's how we've started this Notes from Nature project, where we have an interactive database now for people to enter the specimen data online. As of this morning, we had over 2,790 people entering data. We're approaching 170,000 total transcriptions, people entering data online through this project, which started just a few weeks ago. Wow. That's impressive. It is. Have you tried to calculate how many people you think need to volunteer to help? So when we initially started this project, and we were even in the planning stages, we thought, oh, how long would it take us to actually database just our collection alone? You look at the amount of staff that we have and the the budget that we have, and we figured at least a century to do this in-house. So we hired some students to help us out, take some of these images, and they started doing the database for us. But we realized, okay, that cut it down to maybe half a century. Still, that was going to be too long. We needed more help in having these images that you can be sitting online anywhere in the world and jump online and and help us transcribe these images. So that was a huge step forward. It's an incredibly simple step to take, but it was a very important one. And how did that idea bubble up? Well, we heard about Zooniverse, which is a citizen science organization that creates these web interfaces. In particular, we saw this project called Old Weather. What this project did was enter weather records from ship logs from World War I. The purpose is to improve climate models for the oceans in that time period. So we knew we wanted to do something similar with, with our images. I submitted an application to them. What won them over, I think, was the actual photos of our specimens with the pen sticking through them. They were really impressed with that. And that's also something that the citizen scientists really like as well. They really enjoy seeing the actual pictures of the insects. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guests today are Joni Ball and Peter Obojski from the Calbug Project. In the next segment... They discuss how they choose which specimens to begin cataloging. Talk a little bit about the people at the ESSIG that keep it all going. Yeah, we do have a pretty limited staff in the museum, but I have to say the real work gets done by the undergraduates. These are either volunteers or work-study students, and they put in endless hours, and they're the ones who are taking these images that we're putting up online Without them, work just doesn't get done on campus. They really are the, the workforce of this campus. Going back to the involvement of the citizen scientists, the transcription work that they do, how would you characterize who's good at it? What sort of person would enjoy this? Do you have a sense of who that is, or do you think people should just try it and see? Just anyone who's curious and has little time to help out, but it tends to be people who are really enjoy contributing to something. Yeah, it is an opportunity to be part of a a larger community. People enjoy that. 
And I think some people are surprised when they, they like it. So some people just blog on it, eh, yeah, it's okay. And, and some people, it just doesn't do it for them. But they took a look, and now they know. But other people, they kind of surprise themselves. Like, oh, this is actually kind of fun. And in a way, you're following an expedition. You can you know, see where these things are coming from, what year they were collected. We had some really funny comments about one of our professors who's still actively collecting Somebody suggested perhaps he's a vampire because he's been collecting for 50 years and, and the specimens are still coming in. So little observations like that and people just, they become part of our community without even knowing it. Yeah, and some people who never really had an interest in insects before find themselves now more interested in what's around them. One woman mentioned that as she was driving an insect splattered on her car and she was trying to identify it or, you know, <laughs> suddenly she had this new appreciation for insects which was pretty neat. How are you choosing the million specimens to start with? Uh, well, actually, one of the groups that we've decided to focus on to start with are the dragonflies. The reason for that is that we have good collections for them over the 100 years where we have our collections. They've been well collected over time. They're a pretty charismatic group. They're also used as biological indicators for stream ecosystem health. So that's one of the groups that we're focusing on. We're also focusing on certain insects that are used in applied research like pollinators or biological control agents. What are some of the other groups? Yeah, the approach we used to selecting the groups were groups that we have well represented in the museum, groups that have some significance regarding global change, whether it be land use change, that be climate change, change in the way water is distributed, so which groups are more sensitive to that that might give us some indication of, of what's happened in the past? The other criterion we used was places where we have long-term collections because museums have some biases in them, and we have to recognize that when we do this kind of research. People went to a particular place at a particular time because there's something interesting there for them. So some places we have fewer collections over the years. Other places we have nice long-term data sets. So we also focused on locations where we knew we had nice long-term data. That makes sense. Yeah. So collecting is ongoing? It is. So we continually collect. The museum specimens, the, the insect collection, comes from a number of sources. The most common is research that's done right here on campus. Professors, students who are doing research projects, they deposit what we refer to as voucher specimens in the museum. So... You write a publication that says you found this species at this place. Somebody else reads that and says, well, that sounds odd. I, I don't think that thing occurs there. Well, you have to be able to go back to that specimen and look at it. So, oh, yeah, sure enough, there it is. I wouldn't have believed that. So we have to voucher these specimens in a museum. So that's a, a large part of where our collection comes from. In 1939, Professor Essig, the namesake of our museum, had this idea to start the California Insect Survey. UC Berkeley is a land-grant school, which means we owe a certain responsibility back to the community, to agriculture, to forestry, to the urban ecosystem, and we need to be able to answer questions. But if we don't have representatives of the insects that are out there, then it's much harder to answer those sort of questions. So that was his logic in launching the California Insect Survey, sending professors and students all over the state. And that was in 1939. So our collections go back earlier than that, but that's where the real boost began in our collections. So from that point on, we've had regular collecting trips. Uh, people in the museum, professors, other folks will go out and collect all over the state and then deposit their material. Another source of our specimens are donations. There's a lot of hobbyists, enthusiasts that 
aren't necessarily professional entomologists, but they really enjoy butterflies or beetles or whatever group. At some point, when they have their family and their kids and they've got these big boxes taking up a lot of space in their house, they say, well, geez, you know, I really like having these here, but you know, maybe I should give them to a museum somewhere. So I get a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Just in the past couple of years, we've had, I don't know, about 10,000 donated specimens, which has been really nice. We don't do much in the way of trading. There's, there are museums out there that will buy and sell specimens, but because the main interest of our museum is answering questions about California, we can go out and get most of that stuff ourselves. Our guests today on Spectrum are Joni Ball and Peter Oboisky. In the next segment, they talk about how CalBug is already affecting research. This is KALX Berkeley. So how is the end product affecting research, do you think, from pre-digitization and now post-digitization? How are people able to leverage what they have in a database now that they couldn't do previously? Well, I'm doing research using the Dragonfly collections from a few different angles. One of my projects is to resurvey sites that were originally sampled in 1914 for dragonflies. So this collector, Clarence Hamilton Kennedy, went around California and Nevada collecting dragonflies at, in 1914 and created a list of species for all of the sites that he visited, which turns out to be around 40 sites throughout the region. Um, the problem was he didn't include the dates that he visited these sites. That information is on his specimens, so I used the collection to reconstruct the dates that he went to these specific sites, and then I revisited those sites on the same day. And now what I'm doing is I'm comparing my surveys to the original surveys that were done in 1914 to see how things like species richness and the proportion of habitat generalists versus specialists and some other community metrics have changed over that time period. Another project that I'm working on will be using all of the museum specimens for dragonflies, and I'll be comparing communities for different counties for the different time periods throughout the hundred years that we have collections. So I'm looking to see which time periods have enough specimens for a comparison. For example, there was a lot of collecting activity in the 70s. There's a lot of current collecting activity through another group, actually, Dragonfly Enthusiast Group, who report their sightings. So I'm using their sightings for current species distribution throughout California. One of the last projects that I'm working on is creating species distribution models, which is something that a lot of ecologists are doing right now with historical data. The museum collections are points for that. You can create a latitude and longitude for where you find individual specimens throughout time. I'm using these to look at changes in species distribution over recent decades in relation to factors like climate and land use. So I started analyzing some of the changes in the dragonfly communities based on the resurvey. And some of the things that I'm finding so far is, are that communities are becoming more similar throughout the survey. Previously, you might find much more different species at different sites, whereas now you're finding a lot of the same things over and over again. So we're seeing kind of a homogenization of dragonfly communities. A lot of researchers have come to the museum to do similar sorts of studies to Joni's, where they're looking at one species, its distribution over time. And that meant coming into our museum, 
looking at our specimens, typing that up. They would bring that home and put that into their database, write up a report on that, but that didn't always end up back in our database. And it was only one species at a time. So the advantage to what we're doing now is we can look at whole communities at a time. Joni's case, the whole dragonfly, damselfly community, rather than looking at one species at a time. So you couldn't do that before without one of these larger databases. We keep thinking in terms of the research, which is one of the main reasons why we're doing this, but there's a lot of practical outcomes for the general public as well. For instance, maybe you're a fly fisherman and you're going up to this particular drainage basin or this river and you want to know, well, what's flying up there? I want to know what kind of flies I should be tying. So at some point in the future, you'll be able to pull up in our database and see, well, what's flying that time of year in that area? Or you find a spider in your house and you want to know, well, what kind of spiders are found in my area? You should be able to go to our database and find that. Or, you know, you're a farmer and you're thinking about rotating to some new crop that you haven't planted before and you want to know what kind of pests should I be worried about, what things feed on this plant in this area. So those are the kinds of questions that other folks outside of the museum community should be able to use. And like I say, this is all freely available online once it's all been databased. So this is, you know, it's not just for us, it's for everybody. What ends up being the most diverse species of insects? If You were mentioning dragonflies aren't really all that diverse beetles. There's a famous geneticist, Haldane, when asked what has he learned in his studies about the creator. He said the creator had an inordinate fondness for beetles. Certainly beetles are the most species rich out there, and within the beetles, the weevils. A lot of these are very host specialized, and so for every species of plant out there, you may have several species of weevil that specialize on them. So it's said that if you were to take one of every species, take a black-tailed deer, a blue whale, a sequoia tree, a, you know, every species of insect out there and line them all up, four out of ten would be a beetle. So 40% of the diversity, of the macro diversity. Now, when I say this to people who study bacteria and viruses, they say, uh, yeah, well, I say, okay, you're right, you're right. There are, there's a lot out there with that. But of multicellular you know, animals and plants, the insects certainly outnumber most other things. I'm Renee Rao, and you're listening to Spectrum. Today's guests are Joni Ball and Peter Oboiski. In the next segment, they discuss the importance of entomology. This is KLX Berkeley. What is the most studied insect? The more charismatic things, as you might guess, get a lot more attention. Butterflies get a lot of attention. They're showy. They're out during the day. They're conspicuous. They don't hide themselves. It makes them easy to study and for hobbyists to notice them. The more obscure things, the tiny, the brown, the cryptic things that are much more diverse but are much harder to study, and there's far fewer people that actually study them. It's just human nature. You know, we, we're attracted to some things that we find aesthetically pleasing and other things that we don't. It takes a special kind of person to look at them. We call them entomologists. <laughs> Within the current environment, are insects ascending or is, are they struggling or is it case by case? Very much case by case. And again, the more charismatic things we know a lot more about. I know of about 20 species that are listed as endangered in California. 14 of those are butterflies. Then there's a large moth, three pretty charismatic beetles, a lion, a grasshopper. So these are all pretty conspicuous sort of things. A lot of them are endangered because of habitat loss. They specialize in a particular plant that only occurs in a particular habitat, especially meadows. So many meadows have been turned into grazed plots or housing developments or golf courses. There's been all kinds of lawsuits around what to do with this meadow and that sort of thing. But there's probably a lot more out there 
that have become very rare that we just don't know about it because nobody has looked at them in any great depth. That said, some of the things we do also promote some insects. Certainly our agriculture is this great field of food for not just us, but for insects as well. So some pest species, well, we consider them pests. You know, they're just trying to live. They've flourished. There's other things, prescribed burning, where you open up a habitat and let the new vegetation grow back in. There are some insects that specialize on that. Unfortunately, the things that specialize in more stable habitats, say old-growth forest, they're having less of a good time about it because those habitats, once you disturb them, it takes a long time for them to, to get back into balance. So, yeah, it's a case-by-case basis. Some things are doing well, others are not. The other thing that we're seeing is, like in many other groups, habitat generalists are really expanding because they can live in a variety of different environments and they're more tolerant to changes in the habitat, so they can even live in urban areas. So a lot of the habitat generalists are really expanding, while the habitat specialists are more likely to be declining. So I think to some extent we've talked about it, but is there anything specific about the importance of studying insects that you want to mention? Well, we like to think that humans rule the world. And, uh, but, you know, if our species was to disappear tomorrow, the world would probably go on okay, maybe even better. But if insects were to disappear tomorrow, most ecosystems would collapse pretty quickly. And so I think that's a pretty compelling reason right there to, to look at them. They act as pollinators. They're recycling nutrients. They're keeping plants in check so the plants don't overrun the world. They're keeping other insects in check so they don't overrun the world. It kind of keeps things in balance. They act as food for a lot of other organisms. So they're, they're a one of the most important components of the ecosystem. And to me, that's enough reason to study them. But beyond that, their biology, their behavior is sometimes just fascinating to just sit by a pond and watch a dragonfly. It's, It's just amazing to see how they move and how they can move. I mean, they've inspired so many things. I think the, uh, the helicopter was inspired by dragonflies. It's the same kind of design. You know, beyond that, their physiology, there's just so many things about them that are fascinating. And that's where I came from in all of this. As an undergraduate, I was an electrical engineering major for three years and finally realized that biology was really my passion. By coincidence, my first entomology professor got his Ph.D. here at Berkeley in entomology, and this is at the University of Connecticut. He's the one who got me excited about it. For me, every day of that classroom was just fascinating. Everything I learned was telling me about this world that has been all around me my whole life, but I've never noticed it. And all of a sudden, somebody opened my eyes, and I just started noticing more and more. And it, it just fascinates me. I mean, it's, it's 20-something years later, and I still am just as fascinated today as I was before. But I think some of the more obvious things are things like pollination. Our crops depend on having pollinators. And with colony collapse disorder going on with the honeybees, what does that mean? So there's a lot of very compelling reasons to, to study insects. But I think for most of us, it's because we love it. They're just fascinating. Great. Joni Ball and Peter Oboiski, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. My pleasure. Thank you. If you think you might want to get involved with CalBug, here's Peter with some more information about how to do that. There's a number of websites where you can find information about us. The Essig Museum, if you go to our website, essig.berkeley.edu. I'm the collections manager, Peter Oboiski, and you can contact me directly. Gordon Nishida is one of the coordinators of our project. He's on that website as well. There is a CalBug website. It's calbug.berkeley.edu, and that also has information about the project.
few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Brad Swift will join me in presenting the calendar. Next Monday, the California Academy of Sciences will host a lecture by Dr. Anthony Aguera, an associate professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz. Dr. Aguera will speak about the evolution of models that scientists use to understand and study the universe. For over two decades, scientists have been refining the standard model they currently use with new data. In light of this, the concept of inflation has been revised. In many cases, inflation completely upends our picture of the large-scale structure of the universe and suggests that the universe may not actually have a beginning. An object of such enormous size and complexity can only be described as a multiverse. Dr. Aguera will walk through the development of these ideas and describe other aspects of the multiverse that scientists wish to test. The lecture will be held on Monday, August 5th at 7.30 p.m. in the California Academy of Sciences Planetarium. Tickets will be available online at calacademy.org. The August East Bay Science Cafe presents Uta Grieshammer, Ph.D., a science officer at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, the state stem cell agency that manages bond funds dedicated to support basic translational and clinical stem cell and regenerative medicine research in California. Her research background is in the study of embryonic development, elucidating how the cells of mouse and chick embryos assemble into functional organs. Uta will explore the power, the promise, and the problems of stem cells. That's Wednesday night, August 7th, 2013, in the Café Valparaiso, 4130 Solano Avenue in Berkeley from 7 to 9 p.m. On Spectrum, we also like to cover science stories that we found particularly interesting. Brad Swift will join me in presenting the news. A multidisciplinary team at the University of Texas Southwest Medical Center has found that measuring the oxygenation of tumors can be a valuable tool in guiding radiation therapy, opening the door for personalized therapies that keep tumors in check with oxygen enhancement. In research examining tissue oxygenation levels and predicting radiation response, University of Texas Southwest scientists led by Dr. Ralph Mason reported in the June 27th online issue of Magnetic Resonance in Medicine that countering hypoxic and aggressive tumors with an oxygen challenge, which amounts to inhaling oxygen while monitoring tumor response, coincides with a greater delay in tumor growth in an irradiated animal model. The next step is clinical trials to assess tumor response to radiation therapy, says Dr. Mason. If the results are confirmed in humans, the implication for personalized therapies for cancers could mean fewer radiation treatments or perhaps one single high-dose treatment. In some cases, the simple addition of oxygen to stereotactic body radiation greatly improves response. The key is to identify those patients who will benefit. An Android app released Monday allows smartphone owners to donate their phone's computing power to scientific research around the world. The app was developed by the Berkeley Open Infrastructure for Network Computing, or BOINC, a project that is best known for developing similar software for personal computers. The app installs software that allows the charging phone's processing power to be used to analyze data or run simulations that would normally require expensive supercomputers, 
The app supports a variety of projects, ranging from a program that searches radio telescope data for spinning stars called pulsars, to one that searches for a more effective AIDS treatment through a community grid. Boink's creator, David Anderson, noted that the computing power of the nearly 1 billion Android devices currently being used around the globe exceeds that of the world's largest conventional supercomputer. The app is currently available at the Android App Store, but iPhone users should keep an eye out, as Anderson's next project may be to design a version compatible with Apple systems. Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.